Hats have been around since the beginning of time. While we have heads, we will have hats. So in the future, there will always be hats in some capacity or other, because human beings have always decorated their heads from the beginning of time. We can't help it. It's just, it's another part of the body to decorate. I mean, some people decorate their heads with hair. Uh, you know, Mrs. Thatcher's hair was a hat. Not to mention Susie Menke's, Yes, perhaps. Susie, you have very famous hair. I am Susie Menkes, and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. Hello, and welcome to my first podcast of 2021. I hope you're all keeping well. Philip Tracy was born in Ireland in a countryside where he would stare in wonder at the church across the road when weddings presented him with a view of extraordinary hats. Who could have imagined that he would grow up in the heart of British fashion, making hats for his friends like fashion lover Isabella Blow and designer Alexander McQueen? Then there was also the royal family, plus all the clients he has across the world, some formal, others wild and wonderful. The secret of Philip Tracy's success is not his fame, although well-deserved. It is his extraordinary talent. That is displayed in a large-scale current exhibition of his hats at the Errata Museum in St. Petersburg. The Russian people are queuing round the block to see it. Behind the story of the little boy who sneaked over to use his mother's sewing machine is a man who has had a profound effect on famous fashion houses, from Karl Lagerfeld to Chanel, to Ralph Lauren, Valentino, Gianni Versace. Here is the story from Philip's own lips. Is the great man here? Susie, I'm sorry, we had some technical problems. <laughs> oh, what a surprise, don't yes. we always? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, it, it, I wouldn't have been able to get the screen on at all if Hannah hadn't been here, so... <laughs> You're looking so glamorous. Is this how you dress every day? Not really, it's just for you. I just bought this kind of Balenciaga sweatshirt because I absolutely love the colour, but, you know, I thought I'd dress up a little for you. Exactly. Well, you look very splendid and so do the hats behind you. And um, I really wanted to start with words from you yourself. And what you said was, a hat is not just a means of protection from wind or rain, but an accessory which completes your image, making it even more beautiful and revealing your personality. Philip, are those really your words, how you feel? Why does a hat make all the difference? I mean, you should know because you're a milliner to stars from royalty to performance artists and including fashionable women who just love hats. Who are these women? Who are they all, your clients? Are they just crazy Brits or do they come from around the world? Well, actually, they're, they're international. You know, glamour transcends cultures, as you understand very well. Um, but what, what happens with uh, my interaction with customers is kind of the epitome of Englishness, really, because 
I make hats for very conservative English women who think my hats are completely normal. So it's a great description of Englishness because it's that kind of je ne sais quoi of Englishness that has kept the hat alive in this country. But why do you think it is that you're so successful across the world? I mean, you're just doing this exhibition, the Russian exhibition, at the um, Irata Museum and the galleries in St. Petersburg. And, um, you know, that's an extraordinary invitation from Russia. What a history of dramatic headwear there must be in that city. And um, I think it's on till the 21st of March, so a bit of luck. Then COVID goes away, I can go and see your exhibition. Because I think it was personally curated by you, is that right? Yes, indeed. Well, we had part of the exhibition in St. Petersburg about five years ago. And uh, initially I was... A little concerned because I thought, you know, I hope they like hats in Russia. Well, basically, they had people queuing around the block, which I was surprised by because I didn't know they, they would respond so well. But they loved it. I mean, hats are about beauty and elegance. And, you know, St. Petersburg is one of the most beautiful, elegant cities in the world. And they're surrounded by hats. The hats are on the buildings, but they're hats. You know, all the beautiful churches and the... Uh, Church of the Spilt Blood. So you mean the very the very buildings that you looked at, they are an inspiration to you as a hat man? Yes, but also they're an inspiration to, you know, it's not so difficult for the Russians to understand hats because they're surrounded by hats, but they're, they're actually buildings. So the architecture is, for me, quite hat-like. Well, now I'm going to challenge you because your roots are in Ireland, in a Galway village. I wouldn't imagine there's much there that's shaped like a hat, but... I believe you once told me that women in hats to go to church were your earliest memory of hats. And yes. I know that after that you studied in Dublin at um, the National College of Art and Design. Then you moved to London to the Royal College of Art. But I still want to hear about that childhood of yours and what you think brought you to love hats. Well, I grew up across the road from the church, Susie. So first time I saw a wedding, I just couldn't believe it. I, you know, I was tiny... Uh, I just, it was mind-blowing. It was like a fashion show. So I went to weddings as a child. Isabella used to always say, like, Harold and Maud. And I was like, exactly. So instead of funerals, I went to weddings. But every wedding that happened in the church. So down the back of the church was a child observing the whole thing, and that was me. And so the weddings were like the equivalent of fashion shows. And people, you know, the bride would turn up in a beautiful dress. I mean, I've... Over the years, I've seen the most incredible clothes from designers, but I still see those dresses as the most beautiful things I've ever seen because as a child, they were incredibly beautiful. And so I was always fascinated by weddings. And my mum had chickens and geese and hens. And uh, my object of fas fascination was a, her hand sewing machine. So when she went to feed the chickens and the hens, I would creep in to where the sewing machine was, take it out and start machining and uh, do it as fast as I could so she didn't hear me because I wasn't allowed to touch her machine. I was about five or six at this time, so it was the machine was a job to actually carry it, but I was fascinated by this needle that attached these pieces of fabric together. So I then started making... You know, my sister uh, was the eldest in my family and lots of her dolls were around at home. So I started making clothes for dolls. So, 
you know, I could perfect bus points before I knew what a bus point was. I don't know what a bus point is now. Well, a bus point is when you machine and you you machine up this uh, the uh, the uh, side bone, and then the bus point is here. So I could make the fit work as a child. At five years old, I'm impressed. At five or six year old. And then one of my earliest memories as a child was coming home from school one day, I realised recently that I was six when this happened because I read about it last week when I saw Princess Anne's wedding on TV when I came home from school and I remember looking at the images thinking why are her sleeves so long because she had these medieval sleeves that went to the ground so I was I, I mean I was blown away by by this and You see, all my father's family lived in England and my brothers and my sisters were working in England. So England was like a magical place to me and and London was like Camelot. So Englishness was always very inspiring. And so, and the royal family. And of course, the the Royal College of Art was an extraordinary thing to be able to go to at the great... Um, teaching school for fashion. I mean, I, I had a great time studying in Ireland, in, in Dublin, but the Royal College of Art really um, launched me. Tell me why your graduation um show in 1991, I think I got the date right, the show caused an enormous amount of excitement amongst fashion folk. Can you talk us through that moment when you were propelled onto the London fashion scene? What was it like? What were the hats like? And how did you feel about it? Well, I, you know, at that moment, I was very hungry for knowledge of the craft. And so at the Royal College, I got to... Uh, learn um, how to make hats. So it was very exciting because previous to this, I had to make up my own way of making things, which actually is very helpful, but it's also amazing, fantastic to um, to learn properly how to do something because ultimately, you know, what I do, it's a craft. It's a craft-based uh, um, area to work in. So knowledge of the craft is actually everything. But at the Royal College, it was, you know, Alan Coolridge was the head of course, uh, the head of the Royal College at the time, and he'd been a hat maker. And he was thinking of setting up a hat course while I was just as I was starting. Because you see, I went to the Royal College to study fashion design. I loved pattern cutting and construction and and the actual making of the clothes. But I like to actually make the clothes myself. I love machining. So I liked the actual technical aspect of developing the shapes of the clothes. And so when I went to the Royal College, they uh, they set up the course after a few months when I was there. And I was their guinea pig for the relaunch of the hat course. And then what happened is Harrod set a... a made a, made a competition for the students to design some Ascot hats and there were like 10 students and then I was one of the students and I won. And then basically, you know, they sold all the hats. So I made like four hats. They sold them in the hat department. This was in my first year at the Royal College. And so then they asked if I would supply their hat department for winter. And I was the only student. Basically, all the students went home during the summer and I 
stayed at the college. Alan let me stay there. So I was supplying Harrods hat department um, very early on. And uh, while I was there, what happened was that uh, Tatler magazine had heard there was a student at the Royal College who made hats. They were doing a story called The Green Hat. They were looking for a green hat and people are superstitious about green hats, so they couldn't find one. I don't know why, but people are superstitious about green hats. So I was commissioned to make a green hat. I went to the Tatler to collect the hat. And when I was there, the art director said, oh, have you met Isabella? This is the moment we think of with you. Isabella Blow, this extraordinary, sadly late um, stylist. Just tell me, how much as a friend and creative influence did she help you at the start? She sort of discovered you at that point, yes? Completely. I mean, I'm a a, a product of Isabella's... um, We were like, Isabella used to say, Bill and Bert, which doesn't really make sense, but basically... Isabella was my mentor and my best friend, really. And, uh, you know, you were there, Susie, at the beginning. So you remember it all very well. She did the same for me that she did for Alexander. She encouraged Mm. us. And encouragement when you're at the beginning is everything, you know. In the beginning, now Alexander is a god of fashion. But he wasn't a god in the beginning. You know, they didn't really like him very much in the beginning. They wanted him to disappear. And but for you and people like Amy Spindler, you know, his talent was undeniable. But in the beginning, you know, I went to his early shows. I remember the expressions on the all of the faces with his Highland rape show. They were horrified. They didn't like it. They wanted him to go away. But his talent transcended what anybody thought about him. But what about you? What do you think was the legacy he left behind? You were so close to him and then we all lost him. How do you feel now, looking back? Um, I think his legacy is uh, as prevalent today as it was when he was alive, really. Um, I think that he's been a huge influence on fashion. I mean, he was an original and he was also a true designer. He designed himself. He drew the pieces, you know? Going to a second-hand shop and buying a dress and having it as an influence in your collection, that's not design, that's copying. And so to work with a real designer was a revelation, really. I mean, all, I was very lucky. I, you know, I've worked with the kings of fashion, from Giorgio Armani, Karl Lagerfeld, Valentino, Johnny Versace, Ralph Lauren. I mean... Haven't you worked with Chanel also? Chanel. Karl Lagerfeld at Chanel was the first designer that I worked with. You know, Isabella introduced me to Karl Lagerfeld one evening at a Vogue party. She just grabbed my hand, sidestepped all the people... Um, said to Carl, Carl, this is Philip and he makes beautiful things. And the best way I can explain how Isabella was with us, she thought she was doing Carl a favour. Really? Yeah. You know, Isabella was doing me a huge favour, but Isabella's belief in me and Alexander was 500%. And that was actually very helpful to us in the beginning because uh, we were not very confident people, you know? Isabella was our confidence. Isabella gave us confidence and made us believe that we could potentially 
work with these people. I mean, I wouldn't dream. You know, I was working with Carl Lagerfeld at Chanel six months previous. I was reading about him in the library at college. So I, I couldn't address him as Carl first because it felt too disrespectful because it was intimidating and shocking to work with these designers initially because I was a fan of theirs. So to actually um, work with them and to sort of uh, develop ideas for them and was mind-blowing. I mean, then it was slightly different because I dealt with a single person. I dealt with Carl or I dealt with Mr. Valentino or Johnny Versace. What about um, Dua Lipa, that... Um on Saturday Night Live, wearing one of the hats that you'd made for Valentino, hadn't you? It was a huge, enormous hat overtaking her whole body and face. Uh, Tell us about that. Um, That was from the last couture collection uh, for for, uh, Pierpaolo's Valentino. But initially those feather hats came about because uh, my brief simply from uh, Pier Paolo was, you know, I went to see him in Rome and he said, Philip, I want a feeling of feathers. That was my brief. So then I developed my version of what he, of his statement, really. So I love feathers. I, you know, they are the most beautiful, natural, weightless, sexy, alluring, uh, attractive material. I'm interested in in originality and newness and something, I like to do something that people necessarily haven't seen before. In any area that I work in, I think, isn't that the point of being a designer? Yes, of course. I mean, it should be as as exciting to the designer as it is to the person on whose head it lands up. I have an opportunity, you know, I've, I've had and I have an opportunity to influence how people see hats in the 21st century. I mean, that's a job in a billion. And how would you describe it? You know, for somebody that started out in Ireland looking at weddings or being interested in style, I've had the most mind-blowing experience working in fashion, working with the most talented uh, designers in the world. And But also, because of the nature of it being an accessory, I've been able to interact with the most amazing designers in the world and to design for clients that wear couture from all the houses. It's exciting to design for real people as well. You know, designing for models in shows, I love models, the most inspiring creatures to have your work on. But it's also very interesting to work with the real customers. So I have a client list better than some of the couture houses in Paris. And so that's quite interesting to you know, design for customers that are shopping with Chanel Couture or Dior Couture, Valentino Couture. It's fascinating to meet and work with all of those people. I mean, ultimately, when I design for somebody, whether it's a designer or whether it's a customer, I'm trying to make them happy. Also, I'm trying to make them look good and I'm trying to surprise them. And the whole point of your first question, which which is about hats, is that um, a beautiful hat makes a woman feel beautiful. Fashion is about how it makes you feel. And when you are wearing something beautiful, you feel beautiful. You know, fashion is armour. I mean, I, I design hats for women all over the world who love hats, but I also design hats for women who don't love hats, who have to wear a hat 
fortunately, we live in a country where sometimes you do have to wear hats as a mark of respect for big moments. And so I'm good at those customers as well, Susie, because I help them to to arrive at something that they feel good in. I'm going to be very discreet because I know you don't really want to answer any questions about the royal family. But there is no doubt that you have made the Duchess of Cornwall, she's dedicated to your hats and you've somehow got her spirit in them. And um, for the royal wedding of um, Catherine Middleton, now the Duchess of Cambridge, I think I'm right in adding up 36 exquisite hats for the attendees of her wedding to Prince William. That's pretty impressive. And didn't Meghan Markle select you for her introduction to royal hats. You must yes. have a royal secret somewhere here. Well, you know, it's a great honour to design for the royal family because, you know, they were my inspiration as a child. And so, you know, royals wear more hats than everybody else because they have more... Hats are worn for special moments in people's lives. And some people have maybe one moment in their lives when it's that ultimate moment, it's their child's wedding or it's their 50th birthday party or it's their one time going to the races. But, you know, royals wear more hats because they have more moments. I mean, I designed for the British royal family, the Swedish royal family, the Dutch royal family, the Belgian royal family, and I've designed... Uh, the Queen of Thailand. So royalty have kept hats alive in the imagination of people all over the world, especially Her Majesty the Queen. So what is the secret? Is the secret something that might sound slightly banal, that they have to feel comfortable in these hats that often are worn for quite a long time um, for special royal events? Is it that they want to be inspired by the hats? Is it they want something that fits really well with the rest of their outfit? What's the secret? Well, you know, image is a very important part of royalty. It's a visual communicator. You know, it's a, a hat is a very strong visual because... You know, when you meet, when you look at somebody or when you meet somebody, you meet their face, not their foot, no matter how beautiful their shoes are. So it's the most potent part of the body to decorate. But, you know, I, I don't really have an answer to the question is maybe, you know, maybe I give good hat. <laughs> so um, I love hats and I believe in the survival of the hats. You know, hat designers are the endangered species of the fashion world. Nobody realises that or nobody knows that. It's the kind of most under cared about, the least cared about area of fashion. It just happens to be there. But actually, you know, it's ne it hasn't had any of the developments of that the other areas have, like shoes or bags or jewellery. And so it's quite a complex industry to navigate. But also, Susie, it's a difficult moment for people in fashion. 
And it's a difficult moment for independent designers because in in two months' time, well, in six weeks' time, it's going to be almost a year that people haven't done any business. That's complicated. And so, uh, you know, we're all praying for survival. Of course. But you also are somebody who has created the most extraordinary and exceptional hats. Of course, I realise that you've got to do some nice, simple berets to try and sell something in these hard times. But your hats have been, they are, magnificent works of art. They're, I think I'd call them sculptures for the head. A lobster, a galleon, a swan, a birdcage, carousel, butterfly, even a telephone. <laughs> Can you take us briefly through the stages to create a hat from the conception to the final piece, and including, of course, your dream and how it's realised? Well, I mean, the best way I can qualify it in total is... The kind of work I do is the kind of work, if you explained it to anybody, they would think, you haven't really spent that long doing that. Or how long did that take? And so I'm not intimidated by uh, the complexity of the work. In fact, I find it interesting and I find it encouraging. Um, so it depends. It can happen for all reasons. If it's for a couture house, if it's for a designer, then I develop the shape shapes uh, myself by hand. I take them to the designer, they choose, then it's made in wood, then I've got the actual last, then we start completely fresh. You know, the actual block maker who makes the actual shape that I realise can spend up to a month working on the mould. The moulds wow. cost thousands of pounds. They're made by hand. I work with a block maker in Luton and in Paris but the man in Paris uh, is 70-something. He doesn't have an assistant because people don't want to do that kind of work today. You know, I meet kids all the time and they say they want to work in design or fashion, but their parents discourage them because we're all led to believe if you're not actually working in the city on a computer that there's something wrong with you. But actually, many people work with their hands. bit about your famous clients. There's so many of them. I started making a list and um, look how many I've found already. Uh, Lady Gaga, Madonna, Grace Jones, Goldie Horn. That's just a few. That's just a sprinkling of them. Share. Yes, I'm sure you can go on for hours. <laughs> Do you and your team work with them to achieve the final hat? Or is it that you think Lady Gaga likes this, that and the other and present her with something. How does it all happen? Both, really. I mean, you develop a relationship with somebody. I mean, when I design for, for a customer, whether, no matter who it is, I'm designing for the personality of the wearer, really. So I'm thinking of them. They don't know it. You know, when, they, when, I, when a, client, a customer comes and visits us in the shop, it's like visiting a psychiatrist. They don't realise it, but I'm tuning into every aspect of their face. We're having conversation about what they like, they don't like, what they're wearing, where they're going, what the occasion is, if they're a second wife, if they're divorced. So there's a lot of psychology involved in the wearing of a hat sometimes. But it's inspiring to work 
with some of these people. I mean, they're no slouches, these ladies, as you know. I mean, Grace Jones is no pushover. But, you know, Grace is a very inspiring person to work with because no hat is too strong for Grace. There's no chance the hat will overshadow Grace. In fact, it's usually the opposite. So it's, it's, it's as a designer, it's inspiring to work with all different types of people. But... It can, you know, it varies. I mean, I, I talk to them. They explain what they're, they're going to, what it's for, what the moment is about. Hats are for, for major moments in people's lives, whether you're, it's your major moment at the Super Bowl or a royal wedding or your daughter or your son's wedding. It's for, like, memorable moments. So I take it very seriously and I like to deliver everything that they expected and more. So I I don't like to disappoint the customer, no matter whether it's Cher or whether it's a mum going to a child's wedding. I mean, sometimes the mum going to the, her child's wedding, it's it can be more thrilling because you've brought, you've made, you're part of one of the most important moments in their life. There's something very exciting about that, that if I didn't actually deal with the customers personally, I wouldn't experience because then you're just selling to a store. Whereas the human interaction with the customer is actually inspiring. It's like reading a book. It's like every customer you meet, it's like a different chapter and a different personality. And, you know, what Lady Gaga likes about a hat and what Prince Charles wife, uh, the Duchess of Cornwall likes about a hat is two completely different things, but they're the same. It's a, it's a passion for hats. I, I was rather intrigued when you said to me that you talk or think about your thimble as an extension of yourself. Um, I was particularly interested because I heard this just at the time when, at the beginning of the lockdown, we saw you using your skills in a completely different way, making thousands of visors under the um, Visor Army umbrella for yes. frontline um, staff. How did you feel using your talent that had been and still is for the royal family and at the same time something so functional? Well, it was uh, it was quite shocking when all of the uh, when all of that started first. And I, you know, I read Natasha's post, and on her post she said, "Can anybody help?" And when I read it, I thought, "That's us." <laughs> so I contacted her immediately, and then I helped her to get other hat makers to do it as well. I mean, uh, you know, they're very easy to do. But uh, it was important to um, to help in any way possible because quite literally in that moment they couldn't find any. So it was it was a pleasure and an honour to do this work. So you were literally filling a gap that can have made the difference for even if it was only one person who had COVID and was suffering. Of course, yes. I'd love 
to reminisce with you for a moment. You yes. used to have shows for London Fashion Week, plus the Haute Couture show that you did in 2000, I think it was. And that was all the era of the supermodels. What was that like? Unbelievable. First time I went to Chanel Couture, I was a year, a few, eight months out of college, and I went to uh, Chanel and I spent an afternoon with Carl in his studio and met all the supermodels in an afternoon. It was just mind-blowing. I mean, the supermodels, you know, models are the freaks of nature because most people don't look like that. And so they were the most stunning-looking women I'd ever seen. They were amazing. I mean, Helena Christensen, Claudia Schiffer. Also, they were all completely different. There wasn't a generic look and they had um they had you know superstar quality i mean i remember one night being at chanel one friday night uh where the whole studio including carl was waiting until 10 o'clock at night for naomi to get off concord so naomi arrived at 10 o'clock at night in a white sheepskin coat i mean it was just breathtaking it was like a rock star arriving so these women are in, were very inspiring. I mean, models are the unsung heroes of fashion because as a designer, they're your inspiration. I mean, it's a dream to have something you make on this stunningly beautiful woman. They bring it to life. They bring personality to it and they make it live and breathe. And the supermodels did that better than all the rest because i mean i could watch the supermodels go catwalk all day long they were like visual entertainment you remember that too susie very i well. do remember it but i don't know philip i think the world has changed very much now and i feel that you yourself are not given the um not support exactly but that you're not not given the fame which you so well deserve and the same with the models i as you say, we knew every name of the models in that era. Now they're the star models, one or two or three. But right at the moment, we just see them on a film, don't we? We don't really see them in the real world. Do you think we're ever going to get back? And do you think we're ever going to get back to an haute couture hat show from you yourself? Is there going to be a Philip Tracy hat show in 2021? Well, I mean, never going to say never, but... Uh... You know, I, I I really loved doing shows. It was the most exciting... Um, it was probably the most exciting moments of my career, really, to, you know, to design some things and have the most beautiful women in the world wear it on a runway and bring it to life. It was just magical. And so fashion shows are thrilling. I mean, Alexander lived for the show. His whole... His whole life revolved around those, around creating those moments. So the fashion show has the potential to thrill the observer. And it's just different today. I mean, there are very, very original designers today, but there are just less of them. And now I want to know the big question of this afternoon. What have mm. you got in your hand that you've been making there? Well, I mean, you know, the nature of my uh, work really is trying to, is, you know, I'm making something from nothing, 
really. So from a flat piece of plastic, I'm making roses. So basically, you know, this kind of plastic net was used for making, you know, transparent hats. But, you know, understanding materials and working with materials is really where one learns everything. So I wanted to make a um, very synthetic looking rose. So I'm making different kind of petals that go around it from this boring bit of plastic, really. So that's what I'm doing. And do you imagine one day you can carry on like this, making hats with your own hands? Is there a, definitely a future in hats? Do you believe in the future? I, you know, I have to believe in myself and I have to believe in the future because that's what human nature is all about. Um, but I gain my confidence in the future from my creativity, really. So the actual, uh, you know, working is um, is inspiring. And every time you develop something, you have another idea how to, where to go with it or where to take it. So I'm 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 always curious about the next invention you know i i have to invent techniques and i have to invent uh ideas because i i want to i i you know as i said i have an opportunity to influence how people see hats so i take that quite seriously so i want to make beautiful hats that surprise people and make them question what a hat is all about and the and why people wear hats and the point of a hat but you know hats have been around since the beginning of time so while we have heads, we will have hats. So in the future, there will always be hats in some capacity or other, because human beings have always decorated their heads from the beginning of time. We can't help it. It's just, uh, it's another part of the body to decorate. I mean, some people decorate their heads with hair. Uh, you know, Mrs. Thatcher's hair was a hat. Not to mention Susie Menke's, Yes, perhaps. Susie, you have very famous hair, uh, which is, you know, which is a shape. Uh, Anna Winter, her hair is a shape. So many people use hats, use hair like people did wear, did use hats. But, you know, humans are curious people. We will always decorate our heads in some capacity. Plus also, you know, we're surrounded by the future and we live with it every day, but we just don't recognise it. I mean, you walk out into the street and a motorcyclist goes by in the most amazing helmet that's just mind-blowing sci-fi from the 22nd century. So the future is here. We just don't recognise it. People love to say oh, people don't wear hats anymore. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. You just have to look. People are wearing hats. The policeman wears a hat. The motorcyclist wears a hat. The doctor, the nurse, uh, utilitarian, the rapper is wearing a hat. I have to admit, I've never seen you wearing a hat, but I've seen so many beautiful things that you have made. Go on doing it. Never stop. We love what you do. Thank you so much, Susie. What an honour to speak to you. It's a pleasure for me. I mean, uh, Susie, I wish we talked more about Isabella. Well, let's do it. We haven't stopped. Isabella is the most extraordinary person in herself 
and in fashion. She had a sad ending and we don't want to talk about that. But tell us what she gave to you, what excitement, what energy and what beauty she presented you with. Well, Isabella was the most inspiring person to work with. I mean, Isabella introduced me and Alexander. I mean, Alexander's influence is Victorian, medieval, Elizabethan. That's Isabella, you know? So she brought us all these things. I mean, I had a whole, I designed, I had a whole medieval show. I wasn't hugely interested in medieval until Isabella appeared with some medieval etchings of wimples and almost insisted I become interested in it. She educated us. She was, you know, a highly, highly educated, incredibly cultured person, um, a very kind person, a person with a very big heart. And she looked after us and she was interested in us. I mean, she did use her expense account at... Um, Condé Nast to take Alexander to Caviar Casper quite a lot. So she thought it was her duty to feed a, a poor designer. And so she had a very um, sweet way of operating. You know, she would never tell you what to make. She thought it was tacky to tell the designer what to make. She was just very on the side. She was just on your side constantly. And, and, and she believed in us and she made us feel, you know, that it was possible to work in the world of fashion or to work with great designers or for Alexander to go on and be the great designer that he was. I mean, she encouraged him enormously. She was a huge part of Alexander. People like to diminish it sometimes, but you know and I know that that's completely not true. That uh, Isabella was a very big part of his creativity and a very big part of my creativity. And uh, he listened to her. I mean, she he adored her and she absolutely adored him. And they had a, an amazing kind of love together, you know? And um, so... You know, there's, there's, there will never be anybody like her. She was a very kind of selfless person. She was, um, and a very kind, very sweet person. And it's hard not to feel emotional about her and how her life ended because she gave so much to fashion. Completely. I mean, she devoted, you know, the thing is that Isabella's, the end doesn't, you know, people think of Alexander and Isabella as kind of, you know, sad and tragic. They weren't sad and tragic at all. They were tough cookies. As you know, they were very strong personalities. And, you know, the end doesn't... I, I don't know, I don't have the correct terminology for it, but it, Isabella wasn't just about her ending. You know, she had this amazing uh, career and life, you know. But also her personality really was what made her very special. When she worked at American Vogue, she told me that, you know, when she, she you know, one time she, I think Anna had asked her to do an article about swimming pools or something like that. So then she would just, you know, she told me she met Andy Warhol in a nightclub somewhere and he came up to her. She had a thing at that moment. She told me about buying two pairs of the same satin Manola Blahnik shoes in two different colours. So she was wearing two different shoes of the same shoe in two different colours. And Andy Warhol came up to her and said, gee, 
are you wearing two different shoes? So she befriended him. So when she would do her pages, she would get Andy to do something for her. She wasn't, she had an inner confidence that made it possible for her to just have a conversation with Andy Warhol or Carl Lagerpult or anybody. You know, she did have that aristocratic background. So she did have an inner confidence. But I'd like to say something else in your favour, that you were one of the few people who, through thick and thin, you stood by her and with her, and you're speaking now about her so beautifully. I think that that is a testament of your own generosity of heart, and I'm happy that you have... You are able to talk about your friend and we're only so sad that she's not with us. Yes. Can you imagine Isabella on Twitter <laughs> or on social media? I mean, she'd be barred Yes. after exactly. two days. Can you imagine what Isabella would be talking about on Twitter or how she would be talking about it? Of course we miss her. But, you know, weirdly enough, she still inspires me. I always react to whatever I'm making about thinking... Would she like it? Or how would she feel about this? Or mm. where would she take this? I mean, when I first started making hats first, I didn't have any customers. I had no customers, just Isabella. So Isabella would, you know, just next door was my studio. And so Isabella would, I liked to actually make the hats. I didn't want to go out with Isabella. So Isabella would come back from work and say, OK, I'm going out tonight. And so she'd say, what shall I wear? And then she'd we'd put something on and she'd go off. The most inspiring thing was Isabella wore the hat like she wasn't really wearing a hat at all. So she didn't have any mm. self-consciousness when she wore it. And also mm. she really enjoyed what she was wearing. And she loved when people would talk to her about it and she'd say, isn't it beautiful or isn't this dress gorgeous or I love this hat. So Isabella would come back at night and she'd say, you know, she had a great dance at Annabelle's, meaning the hat. <laughs> How adorable. So Isabella brought the work to life for me and for Alexandra as well. So she was like, yeah. as she used to say herself, a walking, talking billboard. You remember, Susie, I'm sure she was chasing you initially to go and visit Alexander. Yes, of course, but she was... I feel it's all another era and I, I think we should end our conversation now because otherwise I shall get weepy at the thought of it. But it's been yeah. wonderful that you have given us this, this insight into your experience with all your imagination and your energy and keep it up. Thank you so much, Susie. Bye now. Bye, Susie. Philip Tracy, what a story. It was so fascinating to hear your tales, your love of fashion, your work with world-famous designers and private clients, always with your singular spirit. Your work is the epitome of Englishness, wise and wonderful. You have convinced us that a hat is not only an accessory, but also a visual indicator. From your star-spangled clientele to that little piece of fabric you turned into an accessory, just now as we were speaking, you are fashion's headline maker. Thank you all for spending time with me this week. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I would like to thank all healthcare and key workers around the world helping in the fight against COVID-19. I am sure you will all join me as we thank them again for their continued work. Do join me next week where I will be in conversation with beauty giant Leonard Lauder who became uber powerful in his own right. 
Being the son of Estee Lauder, queen of makeup and fragrance, he built an empire that is still growing today. No wonder that he is known in the company as chief teaching officer. I'm so looking forward to discuss his new book, The Company I Keep, My Life in Beauty. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels. Music